and welcome to the third episode of Rock Album Analysts. This is your host, David Lucarelli. And this is John Carson. And we are here today to go into excruciating detail about the third Kiss album, Dressed to Kill. Yes. The third album in about a month or a year and six months. I guess they put out, what, three albums in 18 months. Yeah, actually, I think this came out five months after uh, after Hotter Than Hell. And it's interesting because you can kind of trace the progression, the recording quality from the first album to the next album to this album has gotten steadily worse. <laughs> they are Right, yeah, yeah. They are running okay. out of money and time. Um you know, they tried to go heavier with Hotter Than Hell and appeal to the Black Sabbath crowd. Okay, that didn't work. So now uh, Neil Bogart comes to them and he says, guys, we need to lighten things up a little bit. I need you to write a rock and roll anthem, okay? And uh, instead of having Kenny Kerner and Richard Weiss produce the album, I'm going to produce it myself. Well, that's interesting because Neil Bogart was... Not really a record producer, but <laughs> he did it. He probably couldn't afford to pay anybody else. And for the first time, Kiss finds itself in the position of being in the studio with an album to record, and they don't have enough songs. In fact, they barely have any songs. So what Gene and Paul do is they show up early in the morning and they are start writing songs in the studio. And then Peter and Ace come in later in the day and they go, hey, OK, this is what we just wrote. OK, great. Here's your parts. Let's record it and move on. So um, even that is not enough. They actually have to go back to take a couple songs from Wicked Lester Days, um, She and Lover All I Can. Um, our, oh, our she is over. from yeah, Wicked Lester. Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay, There's a version right. of uh, she from from Wicked Lester that's got all kinds of pan pipes and stuff. It's you know, um, so anyhow, this this album clocks in at a short thirty minutes. Um, right, each, each song the breaks between the songs or whatever to make it seem longer to hold more space or something. I heard. Yeah, they pro they probably did. It, it's probably I think the shortest Kiss album ever recorded. Um, and it's probably the most garage rock sounding Kiss album ever recorded. It's the it's the bluesiest. I mean, it's the most almost like one four five ish that I've heard. Yeah. Them so do. so instead of a lot of riffs, they they now replace that with a lot of Chuck Berry uh, kind of style right. rhythm riffing. And there's definitely a you know a Stones vibe. Um, it's a little bit more lighthearted in tone, and not only, not only, yeah. Th there's the Motown influence that's that's uh, a lot more prevalent, but there's also starting to be, which is interesting, a kind of gospel influence. Um, you know, the whole idea of Paul Stanley as the rock and roll preacher. Uh, this is really the first album that you can see evidence of that as as something that he wanted to to bring across, and you can really see it in. Anything for my baby and rock and roll all night, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, so the other thing that they're they're doing on this album that's interesting is there are a lot of uh, harmonized vocals, um, and not just on the choruses. A lot of the verses are Gene and Paul uh, singing together, very often in harmony. Um, so there's they're playing up the Beatle aspect a lot more. They're being a little bit more mm -hmm. creative with their with their arrangements. Um, 
but these songs were clearly written very fast, so the, there's an energy there. Um, not all of them are by any means classics, but there's a reason why this is Greg Kostelich's favorite Kiss album uh, from the Cynics, because this is Kiss writing the songs early in the day and recording them later that day. So first song, Room Service. Yes. All right. Uh, my, I, it's bluesy sounding. It's again using those sort of Chuck Berry type riffs, one four five type thing, and then the chorus is kind of chunky, or, or, or not even sorry, not chunky, clunky. Yeah, I can't like actually. Um, it's I don't know. I don't like the song. I'm perfectly honest. I just don't like the song at all. I mean, I understand that this is this is a move for them from they're sort of like women are scary and. You know, we got to get women to pay attention to us. So suddenly, now the women are all paying attention to us, and now we can sort of be, you know, bringing the cock rock type stuff. But yeah. room service is probably the, Just, the first song ahead, that they, yeah. they wrote about being on the road for sure, and all the women that are falling right. over themselves to be with them. Although there, there's still a sense of humor about it here. I mean, it's almost like a big bopper kind of thing of Paul Stanley telling the story, you know, of, of the girl who's 16 who wants to be with him and then his dad her dad shows up and he's you know ready to kill him and that kind of thing so yeah there's there's almost three stories in this yeah there's mm -hmm. the the 16 year old girl uh when he's hanging out in his hometown uh there's the the stewardess in the tight blue dress and then there's the maid who is presumably providing room service um you know, it, it's a fun song. It's a it's kind of a light-hearted song. Um, I I don't think it it it's a classic in the canon by any means. Um, but moving on from that, uh, it's got some tasty licks. You know, I mean, they really gave Ace Frehley a, a fair amount of rain with his solos here. I mean, they're they're short, but there's they're for the first time they're starting to use. Uh, there's, I think his solo on this one has um, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Like an octaveizer on it, maybe, or a harmonizer, um, which is kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, uh huh, okay. So they're they're starting to let him have some effects. Um, you know, it, it, as terrible as this album sounds from the production quality, it actually, uh, for whatever reason, if you listen to it on on some powered computer speakers. Um, that's probably the best I've ever heard it, where you can really hear the separation between the bass and the guitars. The guitars are almost painfully dry uh, for the most part. Um, the bass is very prominent in the mix. Um, the drums, uh, you know, Peter's still playing really well. He's, he's providing the energy that the band needs. But then you have a song like Two Timer, which, again, is a song that they would probably not have written any later than this period because it's kind of self-deprecating it's almost gene's right. answer to paul stanley's got to choose right yeah exactly uh this this right this is sort of the old style women are messing around with me and they're bad news this is actually one of the things i i listened to is i was this sounds a lot like a guess who album from the early uh or the late 60s I was listening to a Guess Who album, and it sort of has the same sort of production value and the same sort of feel to it most of the time. It's sort of bluesy and, you know, um, you know, down on my luck with women or whatever. You know what I mean? It just, for some reason, the whole album reminded me of like like a Guess Who or a, you know, beat, uh, 
what is it not? Uh, yeah, Bachman Turner Overdrive, those kind of things. Where it's yeah, maybe one or two really good hits, but the rest is sort of like standard twelve-bar blues, kind yeah, of working class of, blue collar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah so. I, I agree. Um, I, I think uh, it's interesting you say the Guess Who. What they did. Was it the Guess Who that did American Woman? Yeah, they did do that. But there's, if you listen to any of their, like, it, it's one of these things. They, American Woman's a good song, but if you listen to the whole album, a lot of it is very, the same way this album sort of sounds to me. A lot of 12-bar blue kind of stuff, you know, writing things, I guess, quickly or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like nothing that really, nothing here really stands out. Like a lot of times that's my biggest problem with albums is that things sort of all sort of start to sound the same. And no song particularly stands out. Now, I don't think this is as bad as something, you know, because each song is its own entity. You know what I mean? But um, these first three songs to me just sort of kind of run together as like one thing, you know, one, um, you know, here we're going to do this one, four, five in the standard, you know, blues format. And we're going to let Ace do what he does, you know, um, but then the songs, at least lyrically, are kind of clever, you know, so that's what makes them stand out. So I didn't mean to rush you ahead of that, but uh, yeah. So. yeah. So so the first thing that Bob Ezrin ever produced uh, was American Woman, I believe. Oh, really? Yeah. Ooh, so, interesting. So, yeah. And, you know, the story goes that uh, <clears throat> there was a Kiss fan or whatever that was involved in the industry that, that was telling Bob Ezrin about Kiss – where he said, you know, you got to record and produce this band because they're a great band and their albums suck, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and it wasn't necessarily that the songs suck, but obviously in terms of the production, they were not on the same level of, of what Bob Ezrin was doing, even at his very earliest work. So, so huh. the, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Okay, so um, third song, Ladies in Waiting. Right. Second gin song in a row. Right. Okay. I played it for my I played it for my thirteen year old son. He hated it. He thought it was very generic and not very interesting. I thought lyrically it was kind of clever, you know what I mean? It wasn't uh like it's a little cliche written, but it wasn't terrible. You know what I mean? At least the idea was interesting, you know. Right. Well um, Gene's doing a little bit of uh, of a pun, right? Ladies in waiting. I will say this, on the outro of the song. Uh, it sounds like Ace is doing a very early version of tapping on the fade out. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. All Which right. is I didn't catch that, but yeah, okay. Interesting. I, you know, the way that Ace taps is he doesn't use his fingers a la Eddie Van Halen, but he uses the pick in his right hand to to hit the top note. And uh, so uh, okay. I was listening to that in headphones, and and I, I definitely caught that. Um, it's kind of an atmospheric song. There's something that I like about it, but again, uh, it overall is probably filler. Yeah, 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 yeah. Agreed. Uh, yeah, I didn't, again, I, lyrically, I was like, okay, well, this is okay, but I mean, not even okay. Never mind. I'm giving it too much credit. I really dislike that the, the song. Um, at this point, I'm listening to this, and I'm like, well, the third album was maybe not the good one. You know what I mean? Because, you know, at this point I'm three songs in and I'm like, I don't really like this. And I know that, you know, there's got to be something here I like, but I was really disappointed so far. And then Getaway comes in, which is generally uh, another, like, 
another sort of generic blues song, road song, you know what I mean? And again, doesn't really grab me. Is that, that's Peter singing, right? That's Peter singing. He didn't write it. Um, it's interesting that you think of that as a road song, because I, I kind of think of it as the forefather of rock and roll hell, even though that was essentially a cover that they reworked and rewrote. So, Wait, so, what is Getaway or Rock and Roll Hell? Rock and Roll Hell. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I, because I hear it more about, uh, you know, lyrically coming from a point of them wanting to get out of town and, you know, go forth, young man, find your, your destiny. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I don't mean to make it sound like a, okay. It's not a road song. It's more like a, I got it. Yeah. All right. It's more about I got to hit the road type of song is what I mean. The yeah. idea of like the great American, we just got to reinvent ourselves and get out of wherever we're at. Right. And again, um, there's the, the self-depreciation kind of thing of, I got no dough. Yeah. Tell me I've been here too long. I just don't belong. You know, I think it's really, it's, it's them coming from a much more honest and vulnerable place uh, than they would be ever again. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we're, this is the album they're sort of transitioning into cock rock is what we're getting at. This yeah, is they're not still, yet, yeah, they're not yet invincible and vulnerable, you know, uh, right. rock stars that, that are just getting laid like turning on the tap water, but um, that's, starting, that's starting to come. So, right. Okay, so rock bottom. And that's a nice, uh, I like the opening, um, with the, you know, at least they're trying something different with the 12, 12 string and then a little solo on top. Um, this is my, this is what kept me listening to the album because this is, uh, one of my favorite songs on the album. Um, yeah, it was really, I, this is one of my favorite songs again. Uh, the, but uh, you know, and the opening is nice to it too. You know what I mean? It seems like they spent a lot more time writing this song than anything else in the album. Yeah, I, it, in in some ways it harkens back to Black Diamond, where you have the acoustic uh, guitar opening, and uh -huh. then the song the song gets heavy. Although this time it's instrumental, um, but there's definitely some interesting guitar harmony pre and precise playing going on between Ace and and uh, Peter. Oh, yeah. I, I think this is the first song on the album that that made the cut to make it on a live one. Um, and I think it definitely belongs on there. It's a it's a powerful song, and it's powerful I think because of the way it uses the space uh, in between the chords to great effect. It really, you know, uses the silence. And then when Ace's solo comes in, uh, the call and response, the way that he's playing with his phrasing off those chords and just kind of fitting them right in be in between the spaces in between, is just brilliant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. It's a super well written song. I mean, it's very carefully done. There's a lot of elements to it, starting with the, you know, the nice open and then into the difference when the solo comes out. It's just a much, I don't know, even lyrically, it's a lot more interesting than anything I had heard on the album. Yeah. yeah. Um, even the, the way that, you know, now I got the larger say. You know that's mm -hmm. that's that's a common phrase, but it's not a common phrase that I've, I think I've ever heard before or since in a rock and roll lyric. Yeah, no, great. So, um, yeah, yeah, uh, really like Rock Bottom a lot. And in, in fact, they brought that back for the '96 reunion tour. Oh, okay. And they really I, I saw that. Yeah, All yeah, right. they <laughs> nailed that. They did a good job with it. So, um, okay, moving on. Come right. on and love me. All right, this has a great lyric. I'm a Capricorn. She's a Cancer. She's a, you know, she's a dancer. The lyrics are 
probably the best part about it. Um, and uh, wait, I'm trying to th- are they they're harmonizing on the on the chorus there? Um, yeah, there's that... some harmonies going on there. Paul, uh, Paul yeah. singing the the high part. Um, so this was the first single from the album. Okay. And uh, it actually had some regional success, which I'm sure they were very happy about because it was really the first single that they had that ever had that. Um, and interestingly enough, Paul Stanley just recently cited it as uh, one of his favorite Kiss lyrics that he ever wrote. Um, and, you know, it, it's just kind of a stream of consciousness thing, uh, but it definitely captures that vibe of the seventies and the sexual revolution for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. It, it, it paints a nice actual picture that I can actually picture them hanging out in an apartment and all that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Um, it, it's definitely, uh, one of the better songs in the album. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it, what leads off side two or whatever. Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. No, so, I like that one. So next, actually, I, I love this next song. Anything for my baby. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like a metal Beatles. Uh, you know what I mean in terms of how it's sung. Because when I first heard, it, I was like, I don't really like this. But then I, on subsequent listenings, I was like, oh, this is really cool. Like it's pretty well done. Yeah, it's um, it's got a the ton of energy. Kind of stuff. Paul is just singing his ass off, and it's it's, right. it's 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 a joyful song, which is not something that I associate with very many Kiss songs. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Even though they are talking about stealing things well i um, would st- i would do anything for my baby i would steal right yeah right yeah um but it and and this is the first one where i really hear it's not just motown and it's not just stones and 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 um chuck berry that's an influence there's a definite gospel influence here between the call and response of the chorus and, and yeah and well, call. the call and response definitely yeah uh-huh I, um, I see what you're saying all right yeah so so definitely kind of a, a hidden gem, a lost classic, if you will. Um, now that brings us to probably the first uh, monster acknowledged classic on on the, the album, which is She. Which is um, great. Again, yeah. one of the better songs on the album. Um, again, it's, it's super riff-based, you know what I mean, which is different from the rest of the album, even though Hotter Than Hell seemed to be mostly riff-based. Um, this one has has that killer, you know, the, I guess Kiss was great at that sort of chromatic, like, da na na you know, kind of sound, which um, really makes it sound evil, and you know, but at the same time really, you know, <clears throat> uh, really melodic as well, you know what I mean? And it's a little bit more, it's a little more complex than most of their riffs usually are. There's almost a, a little bit of a progressive aspect to it mm-hmm. where they're playing around with the timing and they're vamping on the, uh, the upbeat for the chorus. Yep. Yeah. Um, see, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They start to, um, yeah, there's a lot more interesting energy in that song than anywhere else in the album. This is the first, this is the first song on the album, which is near the end, but it's one. It's the first one that, you know, you gotta, I listened to it a couple of times over and over again just to hear the different parts and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot more going on in it. Yeah. Um, and you have anything. to love the breakdown where it's just the drums and the bass. Um, right, yeah, 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 exactly. It's got some, the, you know, lyrically, it's an interesting song too because it, it's very evocative of... Um, 
uh, like I, I picture like 1970s head shops and, and black light paintings and right, right. Al Williamson, Richard, yeah, yeah, the, yes. the, the whole, uh, moon goddess as right. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as woman personified the dancer who you know yeah she doesn't really know the powers are within her as she takes off her clothes um interesting note the original lyric to this song was everybody knows she's no good right um yeah which would have been kind of the conventional moral thing of this woman that is reveling in her uh, sexuality and sexual power is by definition bad or evil. And they flip it on its head and they change it to everybody knows she's so good. <laughs> right, because it's 1976 and you could say that. No, yeah, that, well, that makes sense. I mean, um, again, it's that, well, it's, it's, it's Gene playing with the demon you know, sort of, you know, this personality that comes out later, um, more mystical, more, you know, <laughs> Dungeons and Dragony, you know what I mean? And more, um, uh, those types of fantasy elements that he plugs into those songs, you know what I mean? Exactly. More, um, and it's interesting, playing a separate role. Yeah. It's interesting that it's just sort of hinted at, you know, and in, in some ways it's a vague lyric, but, but I pick up on the exact same vibe that you do, which is that there is a fantasy element here. I, yeah, exactly. It's, it, it feels like some sort of Dungeons and Dragons kind of, you know, I mean, um, type of song to me. I don't know. I guess most people, most people don't see that. But well, if you know. know his background as a fanzine writer and publisher and editor and a huge and big comic, comic book, book fan, sci-fi and yeah, all that kind of fan, yeah, you uh-huh. can, you can totally see that. Oh, just to go back for one second, there's something I forgot to mention. I believe the end of Two Timer. Um, I just, I was just listening to it in headphones today. I'd never caught this before that, but that, right. That end is, uh, what they stole for the end of rock and roll all night live. Oh, okay. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I never never put that together, but okay. I digress. So next song, lover all I can. This is another song that comes from the wicked Lester days. Uh huh, and it strikes me as filler. Nothing really grabbed me about it. I didn't pay much attention. You know what I mean? I tried to listen to it a couple of times just to see if I was, you know, spacing out on it. But no, it didn't do much for me. Now, do you know more about it or something? Well, that I, I think, need to know I think about musically, it? it's an interesting song. I mean, like the the arrangement. You've got kind of like a moving, um, chromatic climbing thing going on during the during the chorus, which is interesting. Um, the harmonies are interesting. Uh, in some ways, it feels like a companion song to anything for my baby, right? I mean, lyrically, right? Very yeah, similar. agree. Okay. Um, so again, one of the few Kiss songs that I would say is actually uh, joyful. You know, there's it's you know, I remember the times I was lonely without her. Now she's mine, and I spend my time dreaming about her. Um, I love her all I can and try and understand the things that make her glad, the things that make her sad. I'm a lucky guy. I hardly ever cry. And when the world looks bad, she's never, ever sad. So, I mean, you know, a fairly enlightened, uh, even politically correct by today's standards uh, attitude towards a woman here that 
you again would would very quickly devolve. But um, at least at this point, he sounds like he's talking about a partner as an equal that he respects and is simply happy to be with, which is kind of refreshing. Right. Yeah. Especially coming from him. But, um, well, again, this is that you're saying this is wicked, wicked lesser days. This is more when they were writing not to be, they were so vulnerable. Like, you know what I mean? Like you were saying, they might've actually had like, I mean, I'm, I'm not doubting that they have normal relationships with people. Um, you know, women or whatever, but this might've been a time when they weren't stars, you know, and they, it wasn't, you know, um, so they actually had these types of relationships. Um, For sure. For sure. Yeah. Before the rock stardom hit or whatever. All right. So now we move on to the granddaddy, uh, you know, without this song, there might not have been another kiss out. Yeah. Agreed. I, uh, I'm so sick of this song. Now, this is one of the best, one of the, because I've actually learned how to play this song. Right. Um, to me, this is one of the most complicated rock songs, um, simply because of Gene's walking bass line. Well, it There's is. Very few, it is an incredibly yeah. complicated song for being a party anthem. And to me, the reason why it's complicated is, uh, it, everything hits on the upbeat, right? Uh-huh, which, right. Which is very strange for uh, for a rock song, but it's something that Kiss does frequently, and they do it all throughout this song. So um, it's very atypical. Um, you know, the story is that Neil Ga- uh, no, Neil Bogart came to Gene and Paul and said, "You guys need an anthem." You know, and they said, great, what's an anthem? And and uh, he said, you know, like uh, Earth, Wind and Fire, or, you know, I want to take you higher and whatever. Um, and they pieced together a couple of parts, which is why this is one of the rare Kiss songs that gets a, uh, a dual writing credit between Simmons and Stanley. Um, so, yeah, it's actually a much more complicated song to play and to play well than than you might think upon hearing it. Um, and again, I totally hear the gospel influence in terms of the, the harmony and the melody of the chorus, right? Right, and the call and response and the you keep on shouting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's definitely... Yeah, I'll see. I'll, I'll, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Now, to me, but there's also there's a definite Motown in there with the with the baseline, and there's definitely a lot more um, uh, Beals in there. I mean, you know what I mean? It's it's kind of a mess of a song when you really start to take it apart. There's so much going on in it. There is, although this is a very primitive version of the song compared to what you know they, they did with this, a live one. Yeah, they released this as a single, and it did okay. Again, it was not a smash hit. Um, and it wouldn't be a smash hit until it was released as the single from uh, a live, a live one. one. So there's no yeah. solo on it, which is interesting. It just fades out. Um, ah, I didn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah. Yeah, um, I didn't even catch that. Pro- well, that, I'll tell you what—that's my problem. I couldn't. I could barely listen to it. They start every stinking Friday at noon on DVE. They have Paul and Gene saying, hey, Yins guys, it's Friday. And then they play rock and roll night. They've been doing it for years. Do they actually and say Yins guys? Yes, they actually say Yins guys. Oh, nice. And they play it. And I'm so sick of the song. You know what I mean? Those guys have um, always been pretty good about going native. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm so sick of hearing that song that I didn't really pay that much attention to. So no, I didn't even I didn't even pick up that there was no solo in it. That's that's funny. Yeah. Okay. So now let's talk about why this is a classic Kiss song. And I, here's my here's my theory. Okay. Mm-hmm. The best, most classic Kiss songs have a uh, tension underneath them in terms of what the song is actually about and what it is perceived as being about. All right. Okay. So uh, yeah, I would say that the song or the song wears two different faces. So I see what you're saying. So go ahead. You're, so the chorus, I see where you know, going with this. I yeah. want to rock and roll all night and party every day. Okay. That's the that's the anthemic aspect of the song. Yeah, live your life to the fullest, have a good time all the time. Uh, 70s hedonistic motto and attitude towards life. However, from the lyrical perspective of the writer of the song, that is not what he is saying. That is not what he wants. Okay, what he wants is to get with this girl that he is attempting to woo, who is unfortunately a party girl. So every time he gets alone with her in a room or whatever, and he's trying to make this thing happen between the two of them, she's like, hey, let's go party. Right. And he's like, wait, 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 we just got to this party. What are you talking about? Right. And Uh and he's just beside himself because. You know, in, it, lyrically, it actually has more to do with Eddie Murphy's "My Girl Just Wants to Party All the Time," right? Uh, than just about anything else. And so, you know, while everybody sings the chorus and says, "I want to rock and roll all night," um, again, it's about a guy who's sexually frustrated trying to get with a girl who wants to rock and roll all night. He just wants to have sex. Right. Okay. Ah, uh, okay. See, I always, I always really liked the lyric, the party's just begun to let you in. I always thought that was a lot more complicated than, you know what I mean? Uh, but, and I took that as, uh, interesting, because I always took that line as, as because I, I thought, I, I see where you're going, but I always took that as someone who's like struggling to get to the point where they're trying to rock and roll night and party every day, but they're not able to. You know what I mean? Because in some ways, this is probably the most important song on the album, the Rock and Roll National Anthem. Um, Let's break it down beginning to end lyrically. Okay. You show Uh, us everything you got. You keep on dancing and the room gets hot. You drive us wild, we'll drive you crazy. Definitely a Slade influence there, right? Right. And he's talking to the audience. You, you know, you drive a swab, we'll drive you crazy. It's a give right. and take, but go ahead. Sure, yeah. All right. Sure. The relationship between uh, performer and audience. Although at this point he is the audience for her. She is the performer. Um, and you say you want to go for a spin. The party's just begun to let you, to let you in. Um, you know, again, so they arrive at the party and she starts dancing and he wants to get along with her. And she's like, Hey, let's go for a ride. Okay, right, so okay. she's driving him crazy. You keep on shouting, I want to rock and roll all night, party every day. Um, okay, with the you keep on shouting, you keep on shouting. All right, okay, all right, all right, I'm getting there. All right, right I'm following right. you. Uh, you, mm-hmm. you keep on saying you'll be mine for a while. You're looking fancy and I like your style. You drive us wild, we'll drive you crazy. 
You show us everything you got, baby, baby. That's quite a lot. And you drive us wild. We'll drive you crazy. Okay, so, so you know, it ends on an ambiguous note. We don't know uh, whether or not uh, he's ever able to consummate the relationship. But th- that, to me, is why this is a great and classic song. You know, it, it could just be about, like, hey, everybody, we like to party, and why don't you just come and party with us and have a good time? And it would be... It would be sort of shallow and whatnot, and and you know, it's it's got more depth to it than you would first think. Yeah, agreed. I, I always thought it did, but I I see I don't totally see your point now, because they're saying it's you keep on shouting rather than we keep on shouting. Right. Um. So yeah, okay. I see what you're saying. I I totally see it. I mean, it's definitely one of the more more complicated songs that exist and again I, I went through you know there's um yeah because i didn't realize it had dual writing credits so yeah that totally makes sense so, because it does it seems like it has three or four different parts to it but yeah now i totally I'll, I'll buy that i always i just thought it was more of a band to audience um relationship you know what i mean well that's what it's become that's definitely right, how yeah. the audience mm-hmm. interprets it live and i think that's what you get out of it when they play it live um, mm-hmm. I don't think you're thinking about, oh, poor Gene, he's never going to get to be with this girl. When you hear them do it live, you're like, yeah, I want a rock and roll party all night, too. Have these guys ever said anything about it? I mean, did they ever take you through? I mean, no, you no, they've never said like, well, how this got written or anything like that. Um, not beyond the fact that Gene had some parts and Paul had some parts and Neil Bogart wanted them to write an anthem. Um, I have a theory about why, especially on this album, Kiss is writing songs on the upbeat, um, you know, two time or ladies in waiting. Those are falling in that category too. I think it was about this time that they came up with needle drops, um, where you would have like as a songwriting aid, um, just kind of generic rock drums at different tempos. Because uh, this was still before the era of drum machines, but I mm-hmm. I picture Gene listening to LPs of of just generic drum tracks as a songwriting tool, and picking up on the fact that uh, it was interesting to be having the chords come in on the upbeat rather than the downbeat, and that that actually gave the songs. Um, an interesting kind of propulsion that a lot of other rock bands weren't doing at the time. Okay, yeah, I totally buy it. Yeah, um, more of a reggae feel to it, even though even though it's not reggae. Totally, all, but... totally, it kind of yes, it kind of a, a reggae thing actually. Um, although, like you said, not not that they're by any means a reggae band, but. It does add a level of energy to it when you do the uh, uh, like that, yeah. So yeah. that totally makes sense that he would do it that way. And you're right that most fans weren't doing it that way at all. Most were downbeats. Again, I did you know uh, the the Wings of Victory or whatever the Judas Priest album that came out at the time. A lot more complicated, right? Um, songs and that kind of stuff, but still like the Kiss one better. Um, and they took longer to record those albums. Probably. Um, I don't know if they took a whole lot longer, but, um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, clearly the band was was still um, very much listening to outside influences. There's actually a lick that Ace does in the solo on Chi that is pretty much note for note ripped from uh, um, the Doors guitar player. And I'm not sure what the song is. 
but um, that kind of slow descending na, 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 that thing. Um, oh yeah, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which it's rare for them to to wear their influences on their sleeves so nakedly, but uh, but that one certainly What's falls in this in category. I I uh, read in the Paul Stanley biography that this was where they started double tracking acoustic guitars yes. with their electrics to give more space to the stuff, and you can sort of hear that. Um, um, if you listen to Come On and Love Me in uh-huh. headphones, it's the most blatantly obvious. There is uh, clearly what is an acoustic, non-distorted guitar uh, on the right side. And yeah, I think there's there's some acoustics that are going on that are buried in the mix on some of the other songs. But this one is pretty out front, maybe because you know they wanted it to be a single and they were trying to, you know, again... Um, for that sort of mass appeal they you know so it wasn't wasn't all just distorted guitars there's yeah there's definitely an acoustic on that one yeah okay um because yeah yeah i noticed it on that one i think there was another one i noticed on but i didn't actually don't didn't write that down but Mm. it does sort of they they play more with the idea of harmonizing the guitars you know what i mean playing certain chords a little bit different than each other so the the sounds is fatter you know what i mean um yep there's definitely they're doing different guitar voicing um yeah even on the chuck berry stuff there's one song where um they're doing i think an octave apart on that which is interesting Mm -hmm. yeah but again um so overall like where does it stand in your uh, canon of favorite kiss albums well it's interesting it's not my favorite kiss album but it is uh a lot of people's and you know maybe because um it it's got almost a punk rock energy to it there's no i mean i i wouldn't say that there's no filler but uh it's an album that really never slows down there's no i mean yeah the intro to rock bottom um in some ways they're kind of showing their progressive roots with that intro and 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 uh she um but they're really i think I think it's really a reaction to Hotter Than Hell, where they said, okay, let's emphasize the riff-based heavy rock and get those Black Sabbath fans. Well, that didn't work. All right, let's emphasize the good times. I think you hit the nail on the head. Bachman-Turner, Overdrive, Grand Funk Railroad, Rolling Mm -hmm. Stones, all that stuff is coming into play. And um, certainly it's sometimes more successful uh, on certain songs than others, but it gave birth to the rock and roll national anthem. So if for no other reason, it is an essential kiss album. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, it's true. Well, she rock bottom and rock and roll all night are all great songs. So it's, it, you know, I wouldn't have out of 10 songs. That's, that's not a bad average these days for a good, you know, a good album. And again, I, that is a good point. I didn't pick up or I didn't even think of the fact that, yeah, there's not a single ballad on the entire album. Um, which, you know, that's, that's huge when you think about it, because actually it's easier to write ballads than it is to write, um, standard rock songs. I don't know if um, I agree with that. Really? Huh? I've, I've always been, I've always been under the impression that it's easier to sort of play slow and care, you know what I mean? But maybe, maybe not. Okay. I don't know. You're disagreeing, but I always found it easier. And I, I've noticed when I'm playing with other musicians, a lot of times they want to like, slow everything down you know okay and it's, and it's harder it's an album that sounds like it was recorded on speed everything is right. a little bit too fast um 
But I think part of that is, you know, well, part of it is that Peter was not the best drummer when it came to tempo, but they had been on tour for a long time now, so they were able to play together a lot faster and uh, a lot tighter when they were playing fast than they ever mm -hmm. would have attempted to play on, say, the first album. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I can, uh, I'll buy that. I mean, the songs seem almost a little more ready-made. That's, um, like, they're easy, they almost plug it in and, and write them, and they're not bad, you know what I mean? And right. they write some classics, but they feel, um, you know, this is the sound they're starting to go for, and um, for songs that were written, I mean, I, I still can't get my head around that they recorded this in like five months, you know, that they wrote all these songs in five months. Right. Um, and they didn't really because they were on tour most of that time. They like, they re basically wrote, you know, almost eight out of ten of these songs most likely while they were recording. Mm hmm. Yeah. No. And it's um, I mean, it's a testament to their work ethic. I mean, I guess that's one of the other things that always sets Kiss apart from everybody else is that they were always going at it. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. They were always hungry. Like there, even towards it. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say there's an interesting analysis. I forget who, who made the point on Three Sides of the Coin where they said, you know, Paul and Gene are such musicologists that they've been able to, through many eras – analyze what was popular at the time, dissect it, and then recreate it and rewrite it better than the bands that did it in the first place. Yeah, that's something that I've always sort of just, as an art teacher, one of the things I'm constantly telling kids is it's all right to be influenced by other artists. You know what I mean? Because that's how anything happens. It's one of my big main ideas in my classroom is artists are influenced by their culture and their other artists and da 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 da. And, and that's something that at first always struck me as like weird about Kiss in that they always were reacting to what was going on at the time. Like this album sounds a lot like a BTO, you know, Grand Funk Railroad kind of thing. Um, and then you get to. Um, whatever the one is, I was made for loving you or whatever. And they're answering disco right. and it's a great disco song. You know what I mean? Right. And then revenge Carnival comes Souls, out and it's, you know, uh, maybe arguably not a great record, but certainly a great distillation of the grunge movement. Yeah. That's something they've always been able to do. And it's sometimes I'm like, I sort of discount that. And then I'm like, no, that's kind of interesting that they're able to reinvent their sound, still keep it, kiss but sort of put it into what other people are doing at yeah. the time and then in the 80s they did the whole you know glam metal thing better oh, than yeah. any There's glam metal 80 songs that are their interpretation of mm -hmm. bon jovi and their interpretation of def leppard and yeah mm -hmm. for sure for sure yeah now uh all right, well, we've decided to kiss the great fans. <laughs> okay, yeah, good work. <laughs> we have. So, okay, I guess that wraps it up for uh, Kiss Dressed to Kill. Join us next week. I guess we got to do a live one.